Let's do a variety of things this morning, so bear with me if you would. We're going to have a couple of different messages, but uh, they'll be short. If you're visiting with us today, thanks so much for being here today. Today we're going to end with a short uh, business meeting. So my apologies if you're visiting. Please come another Sunday when we do our more regular giddy-up. But we will end with a six- or seven-minute explanation of what's going on on our property, including and especially we're going to talk about the finances this morning. And just let you know, we have been talking about our need since October for a million dollars to finish off the building and the project. I'm going to explain that, uh, where we are on that, and uh, how we got there and what that is, give you the current status of that. Uh, You prayed about that. Many of you, during the season of Lent, we prayed at 1 o'clock for one minute for our $1 million. Thank you. We had a really significant meeting with the bank a couple of weeks ago. You prayed about that, and we've heard some results from that. And by the way, just to let you know, to tee you up, uh, the news is all praise this morning, so it's really good stuff. So we'll talk about that at the end. I want to set that up if I can. So to get us there, I want to very honestly this morning talk about money. And I'm going to talk about money from the perspective of the most important principle that's laid out for us in the entire Bible. What? Yes. Core principle, key principle for living. Those of you who have tracked with Jesus for a long time, this will not be a surprise to you. If it were a surprise, it could hardly be the most important principle. But this morning we're going to talk about the most important kind of core a social life, spiritual, religious, how to make decisions principle this morning from a key passage in Jesus' teaching. And he sets it in the context of money. Isn't that interesting? But before we do that, I'm going to give a long, circuitous introduction to get us to that money topic that's going to tie our conversation this morning with the uh, the conversations we've had over the last couple of weeks. So stay with me, if you would, through the introduction. And then as we dive into the conversation about money and Jesus' mention of the the most important principle to build our lives on, and then we'll do a brief business meeting once again. Visitors, thank you so much for coming. Sorry about the business meeting. I promise it won't be long, and I hope it won't be very boring. And I've got slides. So let's kick it off with prayer. Yes, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your people have gathered in your name. And so we know that means you will be here with us. You're here. We welcome you and we ask that you would speak. We make our hearts the core of who we are. We make that available to you. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for what you've done here at Gateway. Lord, we ask that you would... Forgive us for our sin, those things that keep us from being rightly connected to you. Cleanse us this morning. And we don't want to be the same, so we pray that you would change us, that you would move us, that you would mold us, shape us this morning, based on what you tell us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, two weeks ago here on Sunday, we began talking about the importance of opening our lives to people in need. We actually heard a rebuke from the prophet Isaiah, pretty fierce rebuke. He said essentially this, Isaiah said, I'm tired of your empty acts of worship. You come to church and you do your thing, but it means nothing to me. In fact, it's detestable. 
because your lives don't reflect my heart for justice. You're not taking care of the poor and the disenfranchised. If your worship was real, then your lives would be a display of righteousness and justice. But as it is, you consistently show that you're only really interested in your own comfort and ease, in your own profit, actually. It's time for you to start actively opening your lives to people in need. Now, that message was a warning to all of us, of course, and for some of us, it was a direct salvo into our lives. I had a couple of you email me that week to that effect. Then last week, we followed that rebuke by hearing from a variety of people at Gateway who were trying to do just that. They're trying to open their lives to people in need in a variety of ways. I was inspired by hearing how God's heart has shown itself for those who are in need and how it's being lived out in their everyday lives and in their dreams and visions. And I know some of you were inspired as well. Thanks for some of your responses. But this all gets complicated, doesn't it? Even if you're trying to do good, knowing what to do and knowing how to do it is complicated. I ran into someone this week who had exactly this question, you know, the how question. He and his wife have been offering a service to an acquaintance who's in need. Exactly the kind of thing, by the way, I think that Jesus would do but it has become increasingly clear to them that the service they've offered is being taken advantage of. Their act of concern is in danger of becoming, to use the modern vernacular, an act of enabling. But how do you know? In many kinds of circumstances, it can be hard to know what the loving, life-open-to-need kind of thing is to do. We talked last week about the reality that opening our lives to people in need will involve us in mess many times, most of the time. But how do you know when it's just mess that you might want to avoid and for your own selfish reasons and and when it's mess that you truly should avoid? Plus, it can be complicated in an entirely different way, can it? Someone also emailed me week before last with a host of questions in response to Isaiah's rebuke. The questions amounted to close to the same thing. How do you know? For instance, this person suggested, look, some people say that being pro-life is really the cutting edge in terms of taking care of the least fortunate among us, at least in America today. Others will say that the really critical issues are socioeconomic issues like equal pay for equal work and minimum wage. So how do you know? And to further complicate things, there seems to be Christians on both sides of these debates. That makes it seem like, and this person's email said exactly this, and we all get it, that makes it seem like you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say about anything. So how do you know? Good question. Okay. For starters, let's step back from the cliff just a bit and remind ourselves of something important. You cannot make the Bible say anything you want it to say about anything. You cannot make the Bible say, you know, my neighbor has been really irritating. I think I'm going to hate my neighbor. I'm going to do anything I can to undermine their life. You cannot make the Bible say that. You cannot make the Bible say, my parents are getting old and they're really inconvenient. I think I'm going to dishonor my parents. Someone please uh, share this with my children later. You cannot make the Bible say that. You cannot make the Bible say that. We really need that as a family. We don't have the resources to get it right now. I think we'll just steal it. 
You cannot make the Bible say that. But we have to be honest and admit there are many issues and a host of specific circumstances which at least you can make a biblical argument in more than one direction. And Christians over the centuries have done so. What in the world do we make of that? All right, honestly, to help us out of this quagmire, I think it's important for a second. I mean, legitimate question, but I think it's important for us to look at that question from exactly the opposite side, just for a moment. I think this will give us perspective. So given all that I've just said, I think we ought to ask how in the world the movement that Jesus started has held together at all. Why hasn't it completely disintegrated and joined the trash heap of history? Given all the uncertainty and the long history of debate that the uncertainty has allowed, how is it that we are still here? And I think that question actually has a twofold answer that we would do well to remember this morning. Number one, First of all, the movement Jesus started has held together and continues to grow, by the way, explosively over the last 20 centuries because God is real and alive and well. Specifically because God's Spirit actually lives in us for real. And He holds us together in spite of our fierce and sometimes ungracious disagreements with one another. Secondly, I believe the movement that Jesus started has held together in spite of what at times seems like a lack of specificity, a lack of direction, because Jesus and the apostles after him, they did give us critically important and profoundly insightful guardrails. Important to remember. Listen, Islam is famous for its very, very specific instructions about a whole range of human behavior. The Pharisees tried to accomplish the same things. They tried to set up rules in a complex system to make it very easy and very clear exactly what their followers should do in every conceivable, everyday situation. But this was not the way Jesus approached a relationship with God. Instead, he gave us critically important and profoundly insightful guardrails. He and his apostles following him gave us moral and social guiding principles. I'm not going to talk about why. You can think about that later. We don't really have an answer for that, but we know for certain that is the way Jesus instructed us to lean into the Father. He gave us these guardrails. He gave us moral and social guiding principles, and the apostles followed him in exactly that kind of approach. And those principles, those principles, don't lose this, those principles enable us to make God-honoring moment-by-moment decisions. They didn't answer every social or relational or political situation in which we find ourselves. But they did give us core principles that will guide us to genuine Christ-likeness if we allow these principles to guard our actions. And today, we're going to look at, as I said, the most central, the most important of all of these core principles. I'm trying to build the suspense. It won't surprise you. If you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, you'll be familiar with this principle. It could hardly be called the most important if it surprised you, but I think we should make special note of something about it, the, the context, right? It's interesting that Jesus couches this most critical of all principle in the context of our personal resources. And here's what we find. This principle will give us direction in actually answering 
how we spend our resources and how we give our resources away. So at long last, here's the principle. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Let's call this the first principle of the kingdom. And the kingdom is Jesus' word for right connection of, to God, God's sovereign control over my life, God's sovereign control over everything, and God's ultimate sovereign control over eternity. So the first principle of the kingdom is this. If we make our relationship with God the guiding and governing concern of our life, then everything else will fall into place. If we pursue him actively, habitually, above all other pursuits, then all other pursuits will rightly align themselves. If we make being rightly connected to him our first priority, then all other priorities will receive appropriate attention and we will be appropriately blessed by them. First principle of the kingdom. All right, let's hear the first part of Jesus' teaching. It sets us up for the principle. The second part of his teaching I'll read in a few minutes. He'll actually give us the principle in his words. So Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 24. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Hill. And if you've ever read this in Matthew and wondered, how in the world did they remember all of that? Well, let's remember that this was a much more oral culture. They were more trained to remember things orally. But beyond that, I think the themes in this message in Matthew 6, 7, and 8, I think Jesus preached those over and over again. I remember one time hearing, I think it was Jesse Jackson, but one of the people that was close to Dr. Martin Luther King He was asked in an interview one time, how did Dr. King stand up in front of that huge crowd on the mall and deliver that epic speech? He had no notes. It was so compelling. And actually, his associate rolled his eyes and said, we've heard that speech a thousand times. I think these are themes that Jesus regularly relayed to his audiences because he was training them in a brand new way of seeing God. So let's hear this morning the profundity of what Jesus talks about. And for this first part of our uh, Jesus commentary this morning, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. He doesn't actually state the principle until verse 33. We'll get there in a minute. 6, 19 through 24. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Same context, so remember that in what he's about to say in this paragraph. The eye, by example, is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, be seated for a moment. All right, Jesus always, always, still today with you and I, Jesus always drives the conversation to the deeper, more essential level. This is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus and also one of the most unnerving things about him. In short, Jesus says the real question for us is not what we do with our valuables, but what we value. Not how we manage our investments, but what we invest in. Not how we give or spend our treasure, but what we are treasuring. That's the critical thing. A treasure, obviously, is something we value. It's best if we 
don't limit our thinking to material possessions. Our treasures may not have any value to someone else. For instance, an old photo of a deceased loved one or a paddle that was signed by all our students in our first class. We often go to great lengths to protect our treasures, maybe even to honor them. We might put a frame around them and hang them prominently in the house. We may invest in our treasures. For instance, Nate may treat one of his guitars kind of cavalierly, but if that guitar is associated with some significant memory or some period in his life or some important person to him, or if he sacrificed greatly to get that guitar, then he will treasure it. He will clean it. He will display it in his house. He will even get angry if someone mistreats it. This is what we mean by treasure. I was asking Diane last night which one of our children had Lammy, and it was Dawson, our middle son. Diane bought this unfortunately brick-hard animal that you know, is about this big, and it was a lamb, and if you squeezed its ear, it would sing a little melody to you, and she put it in Dawson's crib when he was really little, and Dawson was embarrassingly old before he would give that animal up. The ear no longer worked. It was shredded. It was hard as a brick. We bought other animals. We put them next to him. Oh, see how soft this is, Dawson? He would hold it, throw it away, grab Lammy, and go to sleep because Dawson treasured Lammy. It was his treasure. Our treasures include our time, our reputation, maybe a relationship, Maybe something from our history, like a college, and our money. We manage our treasures well, or we mismanage them, depending on the degree to which we can live within the guardrail provided for us by Jesus' kingdom principle. I'm going to say it again. We manage our treasures well, or we mismanage them, depending on the degree to which we can live within the guardrail provided for us by Jesus' kingdom principle. As we treasure God's control over our lives more than anything else, as we actively pursue a relationship with Him, then everything else takes its proper place. And all of our situational decisions become clearer and cleaner. All of our situational decisions become clearer and cleaner. All of our situational decisions about work, about the kitchen, about the kids, all of our situational decisions become clearer and cleaner when we live by this guardrail, the first principle of the kingdom. So as it concerns our generosity and opening our lives to people in need, if our lives begin to display a lack of generosity, it will be because we have wrongly aligned our treasuring. In other words, when we are not open to needs around us, it is because we have treasured the wrong things. This, by the way, is also the cause of our worrying. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, Jesus outlines four, let's call them treasure principles, for us in this passage that naturally flow out of the kingdom principle. He's arranged it in reverse. He's let them build toward the kingdom principle. So let me go over these real quick. We could spend a Sunday on each of these, but the first treasure principle is treasuring the stuff of this world is not a smart strategy. The stuff of this world, he says, fades and ultimately falls away and dies. It's not a smart strategy to treasure the stuff around us here. I want you to hear what Dr. Dallas Willard says in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, about the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky. I just like saying that uh, Dostoevsky's name. Willard said this about Dostoevsky. 
he fell into a lengthy, suffocating depression because of the vision that everything he valued would die or otherwise pass away. This was after he had become one of the most successful authors the world has ever known. But the, and he quotes Dostoevsky here, the worldview of the educated, end quote, that imposed itself on him was one of utter hopelessness, much as it is today, Dr. Willard says. Through the teaching of Jesus, Dostoevsky found an alternative, and such an alternative as soon delivered him from hopelessness to meaning, end quote. Dr. Willard makes this observation about Dostoevsky while commenting on verses 19 through 21 of Matthew 6. Treasuring stuff of this world is not a smart strategy. It may work for a while, especially while we're young, assuming we're also healthy and fairly stable. But it will not work for the long haul. It's not a smart strategy. Second treasure principle Jesus gives us, treasuring the stuff of this world leads to a kind of spiritual blindness. Jesus compares our eyesight to our heart sight in the next paragraph. Now, we all know the function of our eyes. Really, they're the leading source for us for our physical environment. They give us direction. Through our eyes, we know what's coming next in our surroundings. Through our eyes, we know what we need to do to navigate. If the lights are out, we're at a loss. This is what the heart does for the whole being, Jesus says. This is what he means by the light within you. This is your heart. And if the heart is blind, then we will experience a kind of spiritual darkness, a great darkness, Jesus says. We will not know where we are emotionally. We will not know what comes next. We will experience great darkness or spiritual blindness. And if you will, all because we have treasured the wrong things. Treasuring the stuff of this world leads to a kind of spiritual blindness. Third uh, treasure principle, treasuring the stuff of this world crowds out our ability to treasure God. You cannot have two masters, Jesus said. You cannot serve both God and money. I think this needs no explanation, except to say that I suspect we've all experienced this firsthand. We simply need to look honestly at our own journey to see it. Treasuring the stuff of this world crowds out our ability to treasure God. It is a fact. And the fourth treasure principle, treasuring the right stuff will be an end to most of our worries. Can I say that again? Treasuring the right stuff will be an end to most of our worries. And now, let's let Jesus himself explain this in a beautiful passage from his Sermon on the Hill, verses 25 through 34. Some spiritual aerobics. Let's stand again out of reverence for God's Word. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, based on what I've just said, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For, for the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And now the principle. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You may be seated. Now, if you're thinking, okay, but Jesus doesn't really answer my question. Should I take this new job? Should we move? What do we do about our eighth grader? I get this general life principle, but I still don't know what to do. If that's our thinking process, then it may be that we haven't plumbed the depths of Jesus' profound principle. Honestly, take my son Jordan. Last Sunday, for those of you who are here, you'll remember I'm really proud of Jordan. He and two buddies are starting a business, and they're intending for that business to target families in need, to provide them affordable and nutritional meals inside the district. They're trying to stay hyper-local, and they're driving the cost down so that these families can get a really good meal for between 4 and $5 per person. So what if the business begins to falter? Which, please don't tell him, but Diane and I can easily imagine. How long does he stay invested? How much more does he give? Well, his thinking has got to be governed by what will bring God the most glory here? Which direction will most enhance my connection to God? How will the purposes of God be most effectively served in my life and in the lives of others this way or this? I promise you, if those are the governing questions, not only will Jordan not be overwhelmed with worry, but he will move quite naturally to the right answers. He will be able to wisely balance the demands of service and giving himself away with the demands of caring for himself as God would want. Think of my friend who's feeling overwhelmed and somewhat used by an acquaintance. How should he respond? Well, if the governing principle for him is, how can God be most glorified? How can my relationship with God be most enhanced by what I do here or what I don't do? And how can I encourage that relationship in the life of my acquaintance? If those are the sets of questions he's asking, then when he feels a tension, he will be able to, to discern if that tension is caused by his own desire for comfort or if that tension is because the situation is not as it should be. It is not a situation he continue to sponsor. He will know, I promise, he will naturally grow into the right decisions if the governing principle over his life is to seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. All right, so let's end the run up. That's the backdrop. Honestly, we're going to get back there in just a second with a real quick ending. But that's the setup. That's the long intro. Well, that's not the long introduction. That's the long introduction and the money conversation. Now I'd like to do some quick gateway business, if I may. And I want to thank you, Gateway, for your generosity. And I want to thank God for his generosity to us and through us and for us and on our behalf. What I'd like to do is show you three different slides which will kind of tell you the story of our financing 
over the last several months concerning our building. For those of you who are visiting today, as you go out and take a left on Gum Spring out toward 50, that construction over there on the left is our new building. And we're really proud of it. It's going to be incredibly beautiful. I had an opportunity this week to walk around again in it and show some other folks who visited us and wanted to, they called Alex and asked if they could have a tour of it. So we arranged the tour. Several of us went over this week and the drywall is about 90% done. It looks like a building and it is gorgeous. And there are several spaces in it that they're huge. You're not going to believe it. It's really beautiful. So thank you, Anu. And thank you, Jan. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Gateway. How are we going to pay for it? <laughs> okay, so here's from the beginning. First slide. The project cost from the very beginning was $13 million. And that $13 million includes everything. That includes furniture. That includes a playground. That includes startup costs for Gateway Village. That's what we anticipated from the beginning. And I want to assure you, Gateway, that has never changed. That is still the project cost. There's a really good chance that we're going to get in the building ahead of schedule and under budget. Thank you, Scott Long. Thank you, Anu Simpkinson. So the project cost is $13 million. Here's how we anticipated paying for it. You'll see the date at the top. Let's go back to May 2016 when we closed on our loan. We anticipated $2.8 million, which we have, that's not anticipated, from the sale of our land. If you're new, we'll explain that to you later. We pledged over on the far right, the green, we pledged as a congregation to give $2.2 million over a five-year period. And we went to the bank with this and with the plan of starting a preschool. They thought the business plan was so effective and so exciting, they were willing to loan us $8.5 million. The total of that comes to, as you'll see, $13.5 million, which gave us some headroom in case we needed it. You following me? Next slide. Notice the projected at the top again, the $13.5 million. Now let's go to the fall of 2016. A couple of things happened in the run-up to us securing the loan from Middleburg Bank. And thank you, Middleburg Bank. But they did do a couple of things to us that strapped us a little bit. The first thing that they did is they were offering us such an aggressive loan. They said, we will offer you $8.5 million in loan if you will set aside $800,000 of your money in an escrow account, which you cannot touch until you have paid for the mortgage for a substantial period of time. So we did that. Thank you, God, we had $800,000 and more that we could set aside in an escrow account. That money is ours, and it's coming back to us, and it's going to be very beneficial when it does, but it's not coming back for a while. That challenged us. The second thing that challenged us is Middleburg told us in that process, there are a variety of things that we will not pay for in the loan. We will not pay for playground. We will not pay for kitchen. We will not pay for security on your building, and we will not pay for landscaping. To which we, being the godly group that we were, we said, what? And they said, yes, that's right. So that meant when we got to the fall of 2016, here's where we stood. Go to the bottom. 
We had 2.8 million that we had secured from the sale of our land. We wanted to use 8 million of the 8.5 million loan. And we had received at that point, thank you, Gateway, 1.2 million already in donations in the fall of 2016. But what we realized in the fall of 2016, because the loan would not cover so many things in our new building, we were going to have to speed up our giving or we would not be able to go into the building with our best foot forward. And those of you who've been here for a while, you will remember those conversations in the month of October. I said almost every Sunday, we want to put our best foot forward when we move into the building. And so we need a million dollars to do that. We need to finish out that top line. We need the 2.2 million pledges. And I also said, hey, by the way, if any of you are new and you have not started giving to Gateway's building campaign, we'd love for you to join us because we need a million dollars over the next year to buy furniture and to build a playground. Now I want you to know that wasn't a surprise to us. We had planned on those things all along and those things are still included in the $13 million project cost, but the bank told us they wouldn't pay for them. So our five-year giving campaign, we suddenly realized, oh, it needs to be three and a half years because we need that money to move into the building. So, Gateway heard, and during the season of Lent, Gateway prayed, and throughout these last several months, Gateway has given, thank you. Then two weeks ago, we had a meeting with the bank, and we went to the bank, and we said, by we, I mean Anu, we said, bank, look, here are the numbers. They want to hire Anu. Her numbers are always better than the bank's. Here are our numbers. We're under budget. We're doing really well. We've got a lot of headroom in this $8.5 million loan. We don't want to use the $8.5 million, but we would really like to use $8.2 million. If we can do that, then that will give us the headway so that our contributions can continue to come in over the period of time that they were designed to come in. And the bank said, but you had been praying. Seriously. So the bank has ultimately said, okay. So here's where we stand today. You'll see why the fall of 2016 and current, 2.8 million for land sale, 8.2 for loan, and our donations is now at 1.8 million. Thank you, Gateway. That comes to 12.8 million. That is amazing. But the challenge, we're moving in in August. By the way, if you didn't know that, we're moving into our new building in August. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> our grand opening is going to be September 10th this fall. But we get the building in August. So we're going to go over there on Sundays in August and wander around the building. We're going to have practice, and I mean literally. We're going to come in, set up chairs. We're going to all sit down in our gym. Jordan's going to play and sing, and then I'm going to go up and interrupt him, and I'm going to say, Pete, could you hear him? Winston, could you hear him? Okay, let's do the next song. And then we're going to pause in the middle of service, and I'm going to say, grab three people and wander around the building. Find out where the preschool, because you're going to need to be able to answer questions when our visitors come. We're going to need to be able to welcome our guests effectively. So we're going to have practice services in August. It's going to be a lot of fun. And then our grand opening, we're going to make a big splash, is going to be September the 10th. Between now and then, 
we need the last $200,000. So we can already see there are a variety of ways that God can provide that for us, but the most direct route is through my pocketbook and yours. There are a few of us who have already finished our pledge. Quite a few of us have not yet finished our pledge. And I want to encourage you, if there's any way, any way, for you to speed up your giving over the next three months. I know the summer is a tough time. You're going to Disney World. I get it. But if there's any way for you to speed up your giving over the next few months so that we can move into the building, as we've said, effectively, then we'd be honored if you would do so. And those of you who have been circling around Gateway and are now deciding that this might be the place where you want to land, I want to encourage you to give. You can give to Gateway by writing a check or by going online and signing up to give online. That's even better. But if you want to give to the building campaign, you can give and put in the memo line at the bottom, don't miss this, or building campaign, either one. So we'd love for you to give because... By God's grace, we will finish out that $200,000 somehow over the next three months. And we will move in in September with a fully formed, fantastic building that we pray and have been praying will be a blessing to our whole region. That's the vision. How do we do this? You've been giving sacrificially, some of you, graciously, all of you who've been giving. You have responded to God's call and God's heart in this. And still, even at that, we're not giving at a rate of 200000 over the course of three months, except we did a couple of times in the last six months. That's a very aggressive rate of giving for Gateway. If we're going to still fund our regular budget, how do we do this? How? Well, I hope you know the answer. We seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We do that as individuals. We do that as families. And we do that as a community of believers. We seek Him and His righteousness. Okay, we're going to close with a song that's going to help us do that. And as we sing this song, and I'm going to say a word of prayer, and what we decided to do with the end today is to go to the place where we find our security, where we find our peace. We're going to go to the place this morning as we end up today where we focus our attention. If we're going to do this, if we're going to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then this is the place we need to go. Let me end with one analogy if I can. So years ago, I had an opportunity for a month to work on a ranch. And I'm not much of a ranch kind of guy. But this guy was taking care of this ranch for his uncle. And he, hey, come help me. I said, okay. So he wanted me to plow a field one day. Plow a field. So I go out and I get on this tractor and I start plowing the field. It wasn't long. It's was 10 minutes maybe. You know, I still remember this. I was 21 years old. This guy comes running. I see him running out from the house. He's been in the house doing something. He comes running out from the house. He gets up onto the tractor. I can barely hear him, so I have to you know, turn the tractor off, and he says, those are the worst rows I have ever seen that you have just plowed. So I say to him, okay, <laughs> granted, I told you, how do I do this? And he said, it's really easy, man. Just pick a spot at the very far side of the field and drive straight for that spot. Don't veer 
even a micrometer to the left or the right, fix a spot, a fence post or a tree on the far side of the field and drive right for it. And then make a U-turn and do the same thing coming back. So guys, we have a post that we get to focus on. It's the cross of Christ. So let's spend the next three months focusing on that post. And if we don't fear one micrometer to the left or the right, our path will be straight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the many ways and the many times that your generosity has been manifested through us. I thank you for what a privilege it is to give gladheartedly, to worship gladheartedly. Uh, so this morning, Lord, I pray that you would bring whatever adjustment that you need to bring in our treasuring so that we can rightly align ourselves with you. And we, as an act of faith and habit and actually discipline this morning, regardless of how we're feeling, regardless of how crooked the row has been over the last week or six months or two years, this morning, Lord, we want to focus. Because for some of us, the row has gotten a little screwy because of our marriage or because of our work or because of our emotional state because of our worry. So this morning, we dial in. We look at the post, and we're going to go straight for it. Hear us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Bring the lights down just a little bit so we can just dial in to these words. And, and let's just look at the post. Just look at the post. To the cross I look. To the cross I look. And to the cross I cling Of its suffering I do drink Of its work I do sing For on it my Savior Both bruised and crushed Showed that God is love God is just. All right, hold on. Let's do that verse again. Let's go back to the top of the verse. To the cross I look. This is about the post. Come on, choir. Sing it like you mean it. To the cross I look. Good choir. To the cross. Into the cross I cling Of its suffering I do drink Of its work I do sing For on it my Savior Bruised and crushed Show that God is love God is just At the cross you Beckon me you Draw me gently To my knees And I am Lost for work so Lost in love I'm sweetly broken Holy surrender 
undeserving life have I been given through Christ crucified you called me out of death and you called me into life I was under your eye Now through the cross I'm reconciled At the cross you beckon me You call me gently to my knees And I am lost for words So lost in love I'm sweetly broken Holy post.